Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. What comes into your mind when you hear the word neighbor? What comes into your mind when you hear the word neighbor? Because of the music that just played, right, some of you are probably thinking of the incomparable Fred Rogers, who we totally ripped off for this series. But I'm not sorry about it, because Fred is awesome. And I don't think he would mind, because that dude was all about loving your neighbor, was all about helping people experience the unconditional love of God that he had experienced. I mentioned this last week, and some of you probably know, but he was actually a pastor, an ordained minister, and saw television as his medium to share the love of Jesus with people. He was an incredible neighbor. But when we aren't thinking of Mr. Rogers, I bet the vast majority of us put neighbor into two categories. The first one is proximity. We have neighbors of proximity. These are someone, people who who live or work or study next to you. They could be on your street, they could be at your job, or they could be in your school. Neighbors of proximity. Last week, I shared a story about my awesome neighbor, Nikki. She lives just a couple houses down from us, um, and and she's amazing. Um, But we actually have another neighbor. Well, we have lots of neighbors, but we have another neighbor that lives directly across the street from us. Like, you know, you walk out the front door, and she walks out the front door. We're, like, looking right at each other. And her name is Eleanor. But we actually call her neighbor, (laughs) literally. We call her neighbor. Because when we first moved into our house, Judah was still, our oldest five-year-old, was still really young, and she would stop by, and we were all playing in the front yard, you know, and Judah would be like, who is that? And we would say, that's our neighbor. And he thought that we were saying her name was neighbor, because we'd really lived in apartments only before that, and we didn't really have the concept of neighbor yet. And so he started call, like he calls her to this day, neighbor. Like he'll see her, she'll walk down the street, he'll say, hey, neighbor. And she's like, hey, neighbor, you know, I mean, it's, it's the cutest thing. But whether it's next door, in the next cubicle, or at the next desk, you are neighbors with people in this first category because you are physically close to them. You have proximity with them. Okay, that's category number one. Category number two, commonality. Someone you have something in common with. It could be as as serious and big as believing in the same God or as, as trivial as following the same sports team. Neighbors of commonality can also be people who maybe share something deep and important about you, like like your race, right, your nationality, your gender, your class, your sexual orientation, your, your politics, your worldview. A lot of times we see people who share those things with us or maybe share same experiences with us as these neighbors of commonality. The same thing happens, right, when, uh, when you're at this, like, have you ever been to a game, right, watching your favorite team? and you're sitting next to someone, and you have never seen that person before in your entire life. But when your team scores, like you're high-fiving them, you're hugging them, you're spilling beer on each other, like it's, it's an amazing experience. You're neighbors with that person because you share this thing in common. 
If you've ever been to a concert, right, singing at the top of your lungs to your favorite band, and you look over and someone next to you is doing the exact same thing, even though you've never seen that person before in your life, there's this connection with them, right? You're a neighbor of commonality. I think the worst version of this is uh, on social media, right? When you gang up with complete strangers and debate other complete strangers just because the first set of complete strangers shares your political opinions, right? And you berate someone else. Like that, you're a neighbor of commonality, for better or worse, right? So we have these two categories, proximity and commonality. This is how most of us classify our neighbors. And this is actually not just true for us, but this is true across cultures and across generations. In fact, it was even true in the first century culture that Jesus was immersed in during his time on earth. We see it most clearly in this exchange between Jesus and a religious leader. It's this exchange that that this entire series we're in is based on. And it's found in Luke's account of Jesus' life. It goes like this. On one occasion, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So in this scenario, in this exchange, the religious leader is actually mimicking an answer that Jesus had given previously. It's an answer that refers back to two Old Covenant, or you may be more familiar with like Old Testament laws. The first one is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It goes like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right? And the second one is Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. So you can kind of see those two are kind of pulled out of the Old Covenant because the guy asks, like, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Another time, Jesus was asked, what's most important in the law? What's the most important thing? And they grabbed these two pieces, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the religious leader is mimicking this answer that Jesus had given, right? So the religious leader quotes these two passages from the Old Covenant, agreeing with what Jesus had already said is of ultimate importance. And Jesus confirms, you have answered correctly. And then the religious leader asks a question. And it's a question that every single one of us have thought. Even if we've never said it out loud, even if right now you aren't ready to admit that you've had this thought, what comes into our minds usually when we hear the command from Jesus to love others, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love people, is simply which people? Which people? Black people, brown people, white people, straight people, gay people, queer people, cis people, trans people, old people, young people, homeless people, famous people, liberal people, conservative people, American people, Iranian people, people here legally, people here illegally, people here seeking refuge, Poor people, rich people, which people? For most of us, if we are courageous enough to admit it, that has entered our minds when we hear the command from Jesus to love people. 
the religious leader asked the question this way. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So the guy, the guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think? What, what, what does the law say? He said, well, well you gotta love God, and, then, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is like, yeah, nailed it, great job. But which neighbor? Which people do I really have to love? And the author Luke here, right, he's clear about the religious leader's intentions when he asked this question. He is trying to justify himself. Now we know that this Jewish religious leader was an expert in the Jewish law. The man would have assumed the answer was at most Jewish people. This is what everyone listening would have assumed too, but you gotta remember there were lots of different tribes of Jewish people. There were lots of different classes of Jewish people, right? There were all different types of Jewish people. Does he have to love rich Jewish people or maybe just pious Jewish people, Jewish people that came into his temple? Which people does he have to love? Surely he doesn't have to love all Jewish people the same way, right? That's the intention behind this question. Who really is my neighbor? What he's really asking is, what are the minimum requirements of love that I have to get what I want? Eternal life, right? Now again, the religious leader and everyone else around would have assumed they were only required to love Jewish people. Israelites is another name they went by. This wasn't necessarily because they were racist or nationalist, although we know from some other texts that they were. But they assumed that neighborly love was reserved only for Israelites precisely because that's what the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, taught them. I showed you all a moment ago, right, that that love your neighbor as yourself verse from Leviticus. Here it is, love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19, 18. Let me show you the whole passage. Ready? Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. Your people. Which people? Your people. This was the mindset that Jesus' listeners were carrying with them as they heard this exchange between him and the religious leader. And sadly, I think it's the mindset that many of us carry around with us. Which people? Which people? Jesus knows this, right? You gotta remember, he's not just this incredible teacher, he's actually God in the flesh. So not only does he know the entire old covenant law, he knows what everyone around him is thinking. He knows what is going through their mind. So to answer the religious leader's questions, he does something he so often does. He tells a story. If you know much about Jesus' life, you know that he did and said some pretty shocking and jarring things. He was unconventional. He was controversial. He was even scandalous at times. But the story he tells to answer this question, who is my neighbor, I'm telling you, is, is particularly shocking, even for Jesus. In fact, I, I would legitimately say that this is the most controversial story that Jesus ever told. It's commonly called the Good Samaritan. Now this is one of those stories, right, it's transcended the Bible, it's kind of transcended the church, it's become a part of popular culture, which in many ways, right, is, is really amazing. 
it's really good. I, I love it when beautiful stories of unconditional love make their way from Scripture into kind of the mainstream world. Especially, right, at a time when so many self-proclaimed religious leaders are perpetrating a version of Christianity that looks nothing like the Jesus that they claim to follow. We need stories like the Good Samaritan in our world. It's important. It's good. I'm a fan of it. But one negative side effect of this story's popularity is that we have become somewhat desensitized to it. We use the phrase Good Samaritan in everyday conversation. It's lost a lot of its meaning. It's come to just be like someone who helps someone else. That's a Good Samaritan. They saw someone in need, they helped them. That's a good thing. But this story, y'all, it's so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that. It's so much more radical than that. So as we dive into this story together, I want to draw us back to the time and place in which this story was told. I want to put us in the shoes of the original audience and really try to help us understand the magnitude of what Jesus is doing here. This is not a continuation of something in the past. It's not an addition or an addendum to the old covenant laws that Jesus' listeners would have been familiar with and would have been following. This is something brand new. This is something different. Here's what Jesus says. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, at first glance, this example of Jesus from, you know, this journey of this guy from Jerusalem to Jericho, it, it might seem random when we initially look at it, but, but his audience would have resonated with it immediately. These 20 miles between Jerusalem and Jericho were a notoriously treacherous place. You notice, right, it says that Jesus said the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is actually somewhat of an understatement. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level, Jericho is over 1,300 feet below sea level, meaning that in that 20-mile journey, the road dropped more than 3,600 feet. Does anyone know what the tallest building is in Austin? Anyone know? The Independent, the Jenga building. You may be more familiar with the Jenga building is what it's called. Here's what it looks like, that one in the middle there, the Jenga building with the crown on top. That's the tallest building in Austin, and it's 690 feet tall. So listen, just, I'm going to do some quick math. I did it beforehand. It's not happening in my head. Don't be impressed. That means this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho dropped in elevation more than five times the height of this building. More than five times the height of this building. In 20 miles, it dropped more than five times the height of the Independent. It was a road full of, of narrow drops and quick turns that made it easy for attackers to hide and to wait for unsuspecting travelers. People fell victim to these attacks so often that this road between Jerusalem and Jericho actually became known as the bloody way. The bloody way. It was this place where people were constantly being attacked, being ambushed. People almost never traveled this road alone, actually. But this guy in Jesus' story, he, he didn't get that memo. He, he makes that mistake. He travels alone. So he gets robbed, he gets stripped, and he gets beaten up so badly that he almost dies. And as he's laying half dead on the side of the road, someone comes across him. Verse 31. A priest 
happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Let me pause and explain something that is often missed in this story that's really important. So the priest, uh, you may imagine, he was, he was kind of the highest ranking official in uh, the Jewish religious leadership circles, right? He was the, the person most in charge. They were in charge of almost everything that happened at the temple or at the tabernacle, at the synagogue. They, they were the ones in charge. And then a Levite is basically like their right-hand person. They're, they're the second-in-command person in the temple. These two men represent the most pious and powerful of the Israelites, their religious elite, the people most responsible for not just knowing the Old Covenant law, but, but helping people follow the Old Covenant law to the letter, including this law, listen, found in the book of Numbers. All those who touch a dead human body will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves on the third and seventh day with the water of purification. Then they will be purified. But if they do not do this on the third and seventh days, they will continue to be unclean even after the seventh day. All those who touch a dead body and do not purify themselves in the proper way, listen, defile the Lord's tabernacle, and they will be cut off from the community of Israel. Remember, these two men were leaders in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the, in the places of worship for the people of Israel. If they touch this guy, if they come into contact with this guy, who they would probably assume is dead, who the scripture says looks half dead, they would be unclean for a week and prevented from doing everything that they needed to do in the temple, all their religious duties. And if they tried to enter the temple after touching him and they did it the wrong way, they would be cut off from the people completely. This was the law. If you've ever wondered why they don't just fail to help the guy and it explicitly says that they pass to the other side of the road, this is why. They were being very careful not to come into contact with this, what they thought was a dead body. They were following the law. Now, if you're keeping track as you sit there, you listen, this is now two different old covenant laws at the forefront of this story. Laws about who is in and who is out. Laws about who is clean and who is unclean. Laws that assume a very narrow answer to the question, who is my neighbor? You with me? These were laws that they were following. Jesus has set the table perfectly. Right? He, he's, he's brought up all these old covenant laws that were sacred and revered to these people. Things that they considered, if they followed, that made them close to God. Made God love them more and like them more and care for them more and give them more things. He, is, he set the table and I imagine that everyone is entranced. Leaning in to hear how this rebel rabbi is going to finish his story. Luke 10, 33, he says, but a Samaritan. Now, there would have been probably like an audible gasp from the people listening. A Samaritan. Surely, surely, Jesus isn't going to make the hero of this story a Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other hated each other. They were like the, the Capulets and the Montagues, the Hatfields and the McCoys. They hated each other. An example from current events would be maybe the enmity between the leadership of the United States and the leadership of the Islamic Republic of Iran. 
They did not get along. Things did not go well when they were together. They were constantly in conflict, politically, religiously. Even though they were originally part of the same people group, Jews and Samaritans over hundreds of years had so many political and religious conflicts that they, were, they had become sworn enemies. In fact, it's likely that many of the listeners to Jesus' story here had probably assumed that the people who had attacked the man were Samaritans. Because they'd be like, ah, just a Jewish guy walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, probably got attacked by those awful Samaritans. Jesus is about to completely flip the script on this whole thing. He says, but a Samaritan. As he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Quick, denarii, it's a plural of denarius, which is a day's wages. So two full day's wages he took out of his pocket, he gave to the innkeeper, and he says this, look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Again, it, it, it's, it's difficult, I, I would say almost impossible to overstate the radical nature of what Jesus has just said in this story. This kind of thing just didn't happen. Jews and Samaritans didn't speak to each other, much less help each other when they were in need. A moment ago, I compared their relationship to the one between the leadership of the United States and the leadership of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Now, I'm far from the first one who's made this comparison. There's a pastor named Philip Fletcher who actually took this comparison to the next level. He did a creative rewrite, a modern-day version of the Good Samaritan. Here's what he says. One day, a Christian of America made up in his mind to test Jesus. Teacher, remind me on how I am to inherit eternal life, Jesus said to him. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the Bible? How do you read it? And this... Christian of America answered, I must have faith in Jesus my Savior. It is a living faith which leads me to love God and to love my neighbor. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the Christian of America didn't fully appreciate the answer. He straightened his back and said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Which people? Jesus replied with a story. A man was going from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia, and he was carjacked by several people who stole his clothes, seized his smartphone, broke his ribs, cracked his skull, and left him unconscious on the side of the road. Now, it happened to be at the same time as a big church conference in the area, and a group of pastors were walking by. When they saw the man, they passed by on the other side of the street. Likewise, a missionary group who had just returned from India When they came to the exact same location, they too passed on the other side of the street. But a Muslim from the Middle East, as he traveled to work, saw the man on the side of the road, and when he saw him, he entered into his suffering. He pulled out his first aid kit, tended to the man's injuries, and then called 911 for emergency assistance. He followed the ambulance to the hospital and sat overnight with the man in ICU. The next morning, he told the hospital billing office, here is my credit card. Take care of him and give him whatever he 
I love that illustration. But it even falls short of fully conveying the weight of the story of the Good Samaritan. See, thankfully, there are Christians and Muslims, even pastors and imams who, who love each other well, but that was just like not the case between Jews and Samaritans. None of them spoke with each other. None of them liked each other. None of them helped each other. I can only imagine the stunned silence of Jesus' Jesus's listeners as he finishes his story. I bet you could hear a pen drop. And then Jesus asks the question they all know is coming next. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, I'm sure reluctantly, the one who had mercy on him. And with that, Jesus redefines neighbor for everyone and for all time. In this moment in history, the world changed. Faith changed. Following God, calling yourself a Christian, changed forever. Jesus redefines neighbor for everyone and for all time because you see the beaten man and the Samaritan, they were not neighbors of proximity. Right, they didn't live together, they didn't work together, they didn't socialize in the same areas. They certainly were not neighbors of commonality. Far from sharing anything, they were actually defined by their differences. So what made them neighbors? Not their shared proximity, not their shared commonality. They were neighbors because of a shared humanity. Not proximity, not commonality. These two men were neighbors because they shared their humanity. Forever and always, the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is a resounding everyone. Everyone. The religious leader was trying to justify his lack of love for people. And unfortunately, I think that many of us do the exact same thing today. And I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed to say this justifying occurs in Christian churches and by Christian leaders as much or more than anywhere else. Last week, I shared a bunch of scriptures about Jesus' commands to love. It's, it's all through his teachings and all through the New Testament. In an attempt to justify a lack of love for people that we don't like, I've heard it preached that Jesus really, when he was talking about this, he was only talking about Christians in those verses, right? When he, when he said to the disciples, love one another, he was really only talking about loving other Christians. When we are commanded to, quote, love our brothers and sisters, it really only means our brothers and sisters in Christ, I love this story of the Good Samaritan so much because it exposes all that nonsense for what it is, prejudice and bigotry. Jesus' command to love our neighbor is radical because it includes everyone. Listen, when we ask which people, Jesus says all When we ask which people, 
Jesus says, all people. And I refuse to stand up here or stand anywhere else and water down the radical, inclusive, all-encompassing love of Jesus for everyone. I won't do it. Because I do not think that anything in the whole of Scripture is more clear than the way that God loves his kids. From Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between, it's story after story of God's relentless pursuit of relationship with me and with you. He loves us. He loves you more than you could ever understand or imagine. And his call for me and for you is to love everyone else that same way. No matter who they are or what they've done. I love that Luke mentions the intentions of the religious leader, right? When he asks, who is my neighbor? Luke says he was trying to justify himself. Through the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus removes all room for justification when it comes to loving people. Our neighbors are not based on commonality. They're not based on proximity. They are based on humanity. I know this is going to sound strong, but I do not think there is any wiggle room here. Not loving someone for any reason, any reason, stands in direct opposition to the teaching of Jesus. It is anti-Christ. Not loving someone for any reason is anti-Christ. It is impossible to love God or to follow Jesus and hate people at the same time. Like John said in the passage we looked at last week, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Christians, we must love people. This is not optional. This is not one of many commands that God has given. It's not like one of the Ten Commandments or one of the 613 laws in the Old Covenant. It's not one of the things that Paul talks about in all of his letters. It is the thing. Everything else flows from this. We love God and we love others. When Jesus was asked what is most important, he was unequivocal. This is what's most important. We must love people, not some people, all people. It's who we are. It's what we were made for. Jesus responds to the religious leader correctly identifying the Samaritan as the good neighbor by giving us this simple command. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. We believe this command from Jesus is so important, so central to what it means to be a Christian that we are literally going to spend the rest of this spring talking about what it means to go and do likewise. What does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? And more than that, we aren't just going to talk about it. We are going to provide tons of incredible opportunities for you to love your neighbor from next door to around the world. 
That includes this Find My Place initiative that we've been talking about that's on the back wall there. John and Jordan are gonna come up after I finish and tell you more about that in just a moment. But, but before they do, we are gonna end this time together by doing something a little different than what is normal for us here at Restore. We're gonna spend two minutes in silent prayer and reflection centered around this simple question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I want you to make it really personal for you. Really lean in, really ask Jesus, who am I not loving in my life or in this world the way that you've called me to love them? Who is my neighbor? Maybe it's somebody you know, family member, friend. Maybe it's a group of people that you've had some, some, some animosity toward in your heart, some anger, some hatred toward in your heart. We're gonna spend two minutes doing this. Please don't get up and leave. Please don't pull out your phone. Lean into this. Ask Jesus to bring someone into your mind or some group of people into your mind who you are not loving well. I'm gonna do it with you. I'm gonna sit on the stool. We're gonna do it together. And then I'm gonna close us in prayer, okay? That sound good? So close your eyes, open your hearts. Let's begin. God, we come to you with humble hearts, admitting that we have asked, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, which people, which people. God, we're sorry about that. And we pray collectively, God, that you would transform our hearts 
Give us the strength and the courage to lean into the power of your spirit within us as we love all people. Remove bitterness from us. Remove anger from us. Remove hatred from us. Remove prejudice from us. Help us see people like you see people, God. And help us love them like you love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.